Hello everyone and welcome to Creation.Live. I'm Dr. Brian Thomas. In each episode of this show, Institute for Creation Research scientists will gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be current research at ICR, new information that has come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that impacts how science ultimately points to our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the topic, we hope these conversations are encouraging and enlightening in an increasingly chaotic world. Today I have with me my colleagues at the Institute, and this is Dr. Jake Hebert, our president, Dr. Randy Galuza, and Dr. Jeff Tompkins. We're interested in a particular topic today, and that, that is the, the topic of natural, natural selection. selection. You, you've been queued up already. <laughs> yeah. That's right, natural selection. And so, this, it, why are we talking about this? I mean, everyone, everyone knows that this is, uh, it's obvious, it's plain. Uh, whenever, you know, whenever a, um, a cheetah takes down a gazelle, natural selection just happened, right? And so, it, so the thing about that is there's, there's, there are scientists who think about natural selection itself as an explanation, and these scientists believe or believed in it but they're now doubting it, and they, they actually have critiques, and they've had critiques uh, of, of Charles Darwin's particular conception of natural selection. They've had these critiques for a long time. Um, so what we want to explore today is what was Darwin really saying? Why is it so controversial? And why is it, is it controversial enough to where some of our colleagues uh, Get emotional about it. I mean, why not just point to the point to the real examples of it and then leave emotions out of it? So it's uh, so so. Let's start off with, and we, we're, we're going to look at a, a series of quotations, and we're going to look at what these scientists are saying about natural selection, and we're going to quote from Darwin himself um, and see what he uh, what he intended for natural selection, the way, what he was thinking about when he coined that phrase. And so that's what we're, that's what we're doing today. So let's get into the first quote. And we're, we're going to look at what, what they're saying about their ideas. Now, this is atheist Jerry Coyne, professor um, at University of Chicago. Quote, the theory of natural selection has a big job, the biggest in biology. Its task is to explain how every adaptation evolved step by step from traits that preceded it. Can it do that? What's doing that? What do you guys think about this quote? Well, it sounds like it doesn't leave any room for a creator. Because if you're explaining every single adaptation, um, yeah, it looks like it's a replacement for God. Well... Let's just ping off of this, too. What do you guys think he means? You guys have read the literature on this. What does he mean by the word adaptation? Yeah, that is a, that is a, a key word that we read all the time in evolutionary literature. And I think he's really pointing out a big divide between our approach to living organisms and the evolutionary approach. We would see organisms and organism as a completed entity. It is a complete product from the hand of the Lord Jesus. It's made to be adaptable. It can be adaptable, but it was a complete and it was a final product. And when they see these creatures, they don't see a complete and final product at all. They see something that is in a constant state 
of adaptation. In fact, every trait is in a constant state of adaptation. So organisms are complete, and that's why they constantly refer to something as an adaptation. Uh, that, yeah, so, so when he says adaptation, I mean, could we swap in something like feature? Yeah. Like, like body part? Mm-hmm. So, so, so substituting that in, every body part evolved step by step from traits that preceded it. And so that, and so that's, that every body part, that includes heads, eyes, fins, feet, bones, exoskeletons, internal skeletons. Every body part has to arrive through a step-by-step process. And he's saying natural selection has the power to do that. Natural selection did that. Yep. And so that's a powerful that's a powerful. Uh, That's a powerful force that he's talking about there. Force that he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into our first question. You guys have some some things queued up here for us. What, our first question has to do with Darwin's purpose, and it really flows really well from that first quote by Coyne. Darwin's purpose, in other words, he had a purpose in mind when he came up with the, the phrase natural selection. And, uh, and so let's just, read, let's just read what others have said about, um, about that purpose. The first quote we have is by Douglas Futaima. It's uh, from 2013. He said this, Natural selection is a simple concept, but it is perhaps the most important idea in biology. It is also one of the most important ideas in the history of human thought, for it explains the apparent design of the living world without recourse to a supernatural omnipotent designer. Yeah, here's another statement by Francis Ayala uh, in 2007. Uh, With Darwin's discovery of natural selection, the origin and adaptations of organisms were brought into the realm of science. The adaptive features of organisms could now be explained like the phenomena of the inanimate world as the result of natural processes without recourse to an intelligent designer. Darwin's theory of natural selection accounts for the quote-unquote design of organisms and for their wondrous diversity as the result of natural processes, the gradual accumulation of spontaneously arisen variations or mutations sorted out by natural selection. This was Darwin's fundamental discovery that there is a process that is creative, although not conscious. Wow, so here we have two different evolutionary authors, and they're, they're saying very similar things. Um, one similarity between these two is that they both believe natural selection really did this. It, Fotoyma said, it explains. It does explain. It's a simple concept, and explains the design that we see. And then the next quote, um, there is a process, says Ayala. There, it is a process. It is creative, although not conscious. Yeah. Uh, so talk, talk about what gives these guys the confidence that Darwin was right, that natural selection is doing these things. Well, before we even get into that, I just, you know, as a physicist, I think it's a little overblown for these guys to say this is one of the most important concepts in human thought. I mean, you know, that's like, it's more important than calculus. 
uh, more important than Newton's laws of motion or uh, the Maxwell's equations. I mean, that, that I've, I never really understood why they... Uh, well, I can see why he comes up with that, though, because before that, every time someone looked at a creature, you saw features on them, and not only did they look very, very complicated, but they seemed to correspond with human man-made things in many ways, wings and things like that. And so there was always like this 900-pound gorilla in the room. Where did all this come from? This design. This design. Yeah. This, this incredible, not just design, I mean, incredible design, over-the-top design. And in many ways, that's what the Bible says. The Lord did not leave himself without a witness. He left the witness in the design. And so you have to explain where did all this design come from. And more than, more than just explaining the diversity of life, you need to explain the design of life. Because that is really the witness for the Creator. So Darwin is really not going back to talk about so much about evolution. And he's not even going so much to talk about diversity. He's zeroing in on design. Which brings me to my next idea, or, or my next commonality between these two. The, the one says, um, apparent design, Futoyama. He uses the phrase apparent design, and then Ayala puts design in quotes. Okay, so you're saying these are design features. I think most people recognize that looks like a, a design feature would look, um, but they're calling it apparent design. It, you know, and so, Dr. Jeff, we haven't heard from you. Why comment on your your experience working with secular scientists? Is there some something you ran into as you as you worked in those labs? Is there something going on in the scientists in between their ears to where they don't is there like some is there some reason why they don't want design to be actual design? Well, I think most scientists, um, especially in academia, are so compartmentalized. They're focused on their little process, their, uh, their enzyme, their little system. But they're hearing from their colleagues that everything is the result of evolution and natural selection. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like you, know, I'm, you know, it looks like it's designed to me, but it's like everybody's trusting everybody else to have the evidence. It seems like. Yeah, and you can't even really use the word design legitimately unless there is a real designer. And so to, use, to not put design in quotes or to call it real design and not put the little phrase in front that it's apparent design, that would be almost acknowledging that there was a real designer. And I think this is really hearkening back to this whole idea of what Darwin's after is not, is not in and of itself scientific it's got these theological overtones to it, and it always has had theological overtones right from the very beginning. Our question was, what was Darwin trying to do when he came up with this phrase, natural selection? And these guys are saying, natural selection can build any biological creature or any feature on any creature. Well, In other words, it. it's you... like a substitute God. Right, it's like exactly. a substitute creator. You could put substitute God for the term natural selection and have a theology of creation, in a sense. So you could even swap that. And so Darwin basically substituted natural selection for a creator. Well, that, that's, that seems to be where, yeah, why? I don't know. We'll have to refer to Darwin biographers, you know. <laughs> but that seems to be where 
where those people who believe his theory today, that's what they understand about what natural selection, it can do anything as far as biologically, it can build any, any creature. Next, what were Darwin's qualifications to develop a theory to explain biological design? And so this is where you mentioned William Paley's natural theology book, and Darwin did love it. Uh, he wrote in a letter in uh, 1859 to his neighbor, and in the letter, Charles Darwin said this, I do not think I hardly ever admired a book more than Paley's Natural Theology. I could almost formally have said it by heart. Now, interestingly, Stephen Jay Gould made another comment. He pointed out that after he, Gould had reread Paley, he had noticed that there was a similarity between Darwin's style of argument and Paley's. And Gould remarked, I was struck by the correspondences between Paley's and Darwin's structure of argument, though Darwin, of course, inverts the explanation. Okay, guys, what, what, do, what does that mean? What does it mean to invert? So, so William Paley, his, exp, his explanation was creature features got here by what? By a creator. Yeah. By a creator. Yeah. And it's unmistakable because you have to have a creator in order to create such precision and everything like that. And then, by the way, he's the one with the famous watchmaker uh, right. analogy. If you, if you come up onto a beach and you find a watch laying there in the sand, you would not conclude that uh, natural processes, wind waves and sand, put themselves together and, and made themselves into gears and, you know, and brought themselves together. Well, in, a, in an even more profound way, we have, e we have even smaller gears and we have, in other words, it's more miniaturized, it's more expertly, and there's a lot more of them when you just think about what's going on inside just one cell. Um, and, and so by that analogy, he said, we, we conclu conclude with confidence that an actual designer designed this. But, but he just said that Darwin inverted, Gould yeah. said that Darwin inverted this. What, is he, what do you guys think he means by that? Well, one thing it really points out is that um, Darwin was not ignorant of the design process, which is really important because if you're going to criticize something, you should really thoroughly understand it. And a lot of people think many times that Darwin might have been making stuff up as he went. And I don't, I don't come to that conclusion at all. Darwin had studied Paley. He understood the design process. He understood Paley's order of argument. And as even Gould pointed out, he, he went... Point, for, point by point, the opposite of what a real designer would do. So he inverts explanation. So as a real designer, and I was an engineer before I went to med school, everything I design always has a purpose. So you start out with a purpose. And then, as an engineer, I exercise some kind of agency in order, and I actually exercise a selection process, because every time I write a set of plans and specifications, I'm selecting one material over another material, one process over another process. I'm specifying, and in the act of specifying, I am selecting. I'm exercising that judgment. And then I bring about some finished product. Well, when you think about that, Darwin knew that. And so he, he, he goes right back, purpose. And in all of Darwin's explanations and all of those who have followed on after them, they push back directly against this whole idea of purpose, that there's a purpose for anything. They push back directly against agency by coming up with, as, 
as Francis Ayala said, a creative process that's not conscious. So they've interject some kind of agency, if this even makes any sense, a creative process that isn't conscious like that. He wants to get an unconscious agent if there is such a thing. And then, of course, he pushes back against completed products or products that are fit for a usable purpose. You come up with these artifacts which are constantly being constructed. So Darwin was pretty smart in understanding the process, and he didn't just go flying at it willy-nilly. He pushed back point by point by point against a real engineering process. Interesting. And so some of those points would be purpose. Agency. So, so Paley would say, and anyone who's ever made anything would say, okay, I've got something in my mind that I want to accomplish. I've got, I want to build a tool that does X. It has to do X or it's not going to be worth doing, uh, building. Um, but Darwin say, said, well, this creature needs to swim. But instead of a, a creator with a purpose of being able to, a purpose of building a, a creature with a body that can swim, purpose from the creator, he's saying purposeless. Is that, is that what you're getting That's at? That's what he's saying. He's saying swimming is a byproduct. It's, the ability to swim is just a function. There was no intent in mind to swim. And the, to the extent that creatures can swim, it was not purposefully directed. It's just, a, it's just a usable function, which we'll see in a little bit, enables them to survive. So it's a byproduct. It's an afterthought. It's not a preordained thing. So, he's, so now Darwin has flipped the whole script on this, and now he's just introducing a, a new way to view. So it's really a philosophical essay, right? I mean, because neither he nor we can go back in a time machine and look at the origin of the first fish. Uh, so we have to make inferences. And so you can make the inference from design to a designer, which is what, which is what the Bible you know, suggests, especially in Romans 1.20, that we ought to do. Uh, but, he, but he erased that by saying, hey, natural selection can do this, all this designing, and that means it's not design, it's apparent design. It wasn't purposeful. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it wasn't intelligent. It, it wasn't... It wasn't any of the things you think it is, uh, intuitively. And um, so he's weaving, he's weaving, he has woven a, um, a grand tale, and our culture has largely fallen for it. And we're thinking, we're sitting here at the Institute thinking, what all was he trying to do with this natural selection, and what all has resulted from it, and should we... Should we swallow the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, or should we swallow parts of it, or, or not? And which parts should we swallow? And in order to answer that, those kinds of questions, we're just looking at what the scientists are saying about Darwin. So, so he, he inverted it, um, this inverted explanation. Erases, doesn't it? It erases the analogy from design to designer. It's so in a way, it's like you said, Dr. Galuza, it's very theological in its, in its um, effect. Yeah. So cause it, it, because if you, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a designer, if you can get, obtain that design using natural laws, natural processes, then you don't, need a, you don't need a designer. That's right. He doesn't come out and say there is no God, right. but he says there's really no need of a God. And, and things that we used to 
look at and intuitively look at, these are designed features, fins on a fish, since you've mentioned swimming. We would, we would think that those were there for a purpose. And he says, no, they're not purpose. These are just basically these artifacts. These are adaptations. And they may go away on some other future creature. They may be here for a time. They may go away, depending what they are. But I, I think you hit on a really important point. We see things, and you have to interpret them through a framework. And what he's doing is he's setting up a whole different framework by which we look at something in biology and we interpret it. And he's taking us away from what we would intuitively think. Fins are for a purpose. Wings are for a purpose. Eyelids are for a purpose. All of these things for a purpose. And he's setting up a framework which really is very counterintuitive, but to get you to reinterpret things from a completely different way. Mm. Speaking of framework, way to see things, Dr. Hebert, you and I were talking before the filming here, and you mentioned an anecdote about, yeah. about how your framework shifted. And can you relay that anecdote for us? Well, this was around 2014, and uh, you know, <laughs> I had just been working at ICR for about three years, and I was getting conflicting reports about Dr. Galuza. You know, some people were telling me he was out in left field, and but because he's saying what? Well, because he's criticizing natural selection. Okay. Because you had creationists who were saying natural selection is real. Uh, you know, it just can't do what evolutionists claim it can. And, and so anyway, there were a couple of things that really changed my thinking on this. And I remember we, I was sitting next to Randy, and we were, I think, eating lunch. And this subject came up, and Randy goes, you know, uh, this idea that God, uh, you know, uses natural selection to uh, preserve the genetic purity of the herd or the species or the tribe by killing off the weaker uh, and sickly uh, members of the tribe he goes doesn't that sound a little weird and i'm thinking to myself yeah come to think of it it does i mean it's like it's like completely antithetical to everything you thought you knew about the lord jesus you know you, you know you picture him holding the injured lamb in his arms and caring for it and uh, just theologically it sounds kind of perverse and and that and that plus the fact that the blind cavefish story turned out to be wrong, and we'll probably be talking about that later. Uh, that, that really started me thinking, okay, Randy may be onto something here. Let's talk about blind cavefish for, for yeah, just a second, okay, sure. uh, since you brought it up. And Dr. Jeff, you just finished a paper on uh, summarizing some of the latest research on blind cavefish. Uh, what I was taught about how blind, so there's surface fish with eyes, and then there's these blind, blind fish, they can still interbreed, so there's the same the same basic kind, but the ones in the caves have lost their eyesight uh, because of natural, natural selection. selection. Yeah. And so magic wand, bring it in. And so nature, in this case, it's the darkness of the cave, the environment of the cave, uh, has inadvertently, without purpose, unintelligently selected the blind um, uh, uh, fish. So, so somehow the fish lost their eyes, and the and the na and then the natural processes in the in the cave um, retained just the fish uh, that did not have eyes. And so, boom! Simple concept, problem solved. Now, in your review of the literature, does that com does that jive and comport with with what scientists are finding as they're researching the cave? Does natural selection really explain uh, what's going on with 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 that transformation. 
Well, you know, it's really interesting because we're, we're actually talking about the Mexican tetra. Okay. And so it, it, it basically, when it lives in caves, it lives in about 30 different cave systems in Mexico. And what's really interesting is that they are nearly genetically identical to the surface fish. And so they call one a cave morph and the other a surface morph. But it turns out that the whole natural selection story has, has basically fallen apart on this uh, creature because this has actually become a huge uh, model system for adaptation. And so there's labs all over the world, actually, and they actually have yearly meetings where they have cave fish meetings where they all get together. But they are not really showing anything that, that even falls in line with natural selection because it turns out that these fish have all sorts of sensors and they sense the environment that they're in and they deploy all sorts of mechanisms uh, of adaptation. Some of them are in the lateral line along the side of the fish so that the fish can detect vibration in the water and the lateral line is enhanced in the blind cave fish. Uh, they have other sensory systems that are enhanced. Even the, the shape of their brain is different. Everything is just completely morphed in this cave morph uh, to enable it to live in the dark. And it, it really has nothing to do with natural selection. It's about these fish invading these caves and then deploying these systems of adaptation that are built into them. So what did Darwin's concept, he was trying to build a, a new way of thinking that where the cave is doing it, the, the, the hawk is doing it, the predator is doing it, the whatever in the environment is doing, is doing the action. And then in this case, the blind cave fish would be passive modeling clay, okay? But, but you're saying that the researchers are not finding that? No, they're not really finding that at all. They can't find, well, in the modern version of Darwinian theory is that mutations that are random uh, allow nature to select for them and hopefully you'll get a good mutation and nature will magically select for that. But they're really not finding that. They can't find, you know, really single mutations that confer this, this complete remodeling of the fish, you know, its entire body really. They, they just can't associate random mutations with that. It's, it's basically a system of deployed adaptation that's built into the programmed, if you will, into the fish. And, and that's what they're discovering. And yeah, they'll, they'll throw around terms like natural selection, but it doesn't really jive with, with the data that they're presenting. Well, it's happening way too fast to be natural selection, for one oh, thing. Oh, exactly. I mean, if this was, you know, the story I learned in school was, you know, have these blind fish and they're swimming around in a dark cave, and, uh, you know, eyes are no good in a cave, and some of them are swimming too fast, and they bump into an underwater twig, and they scratch their eye, it gets infected, they die off and eventually you've got, you know, the, the ones that didn't have the eyes, well, they don't scratch their eyes and die from infection. Therefore, they just kind of increase in number. And, you know, in retrospect, it's like, well, how fast would they have to be swimming to scratch their eye that badly? You know, it's like... Well, let me say something yeah, about, yeah, about how quick it happens. So there was a lab that, that grew sighted fish in the dark for a couple of years and they didn't get the complete blind fish phenotype. But within an extremely short period of time, they got all the biochemistry, a lot of the physiology, uh, some of the sensory adaptations just developed within less than two years. Another interesting study was is that some people in southern Texas, uh, I'm, I'm assuming some 
some rural folk, <laughs> uh, took some Mexican tetras and put them in some streams down around Austin uh, to use them as bait fish because they wanted to, to go fishing with them. Well, some of these fish decided to invade the aquifers there uh, near Austin, Texas, and they rapidly deployed in less than 100 years a blind cavefish phenotype or that, that body plan. So before researchers thought, you know, hey, it would take millions of years or maybe even hundreds of thousands of years, but now we know that in nature that's happened in less than 100 years. And of course in the lab they've shown that that, that that progression happens in less than two years. Okay, so that's just a, more of a concrete example of... Of how fast it happens. How, well, yeah, yeah, and of, it was of how random. Natural. It should yeah, take a lot longer. Yeah, these are right. targeted solutions. Yeah. And you so, know, you, you said you were taught that in school, but really we have to confess that we, as creationists, even yep. taught that story. In yep. fact, yep. I have a picture of our old museum that we had in San Diego, the Santee area there, where I took a picture on the wall and it, it gave the story that you count, that, that these became detriments due to accidents and then the ones that had these mutations led to the decrease in eyes. And of course we had the little caveat at the end, well this explains the loss of eyes, it doesn't explain the gain of eyes, as if accepting the whole concept of trial and error sorted out by nature wins the game if you can throw a little caveat in, well, it's a loss, it doesn't explain the gain. The problem is, once you've accepted the mechanism, the trial and error sorted out the personification of nature mechanism, you've really lost the game, regardless of what you put the caveat or not, because now all we're debating with evolutionists is to the degree to what, quote, natural selection can do and what it can't do, not whether it's really a valid concept or whether it's even a real observable process. So I yeah, I, and I used to teach that too, and I and I, I read it a hundred times. In in, um, for example, you hear the phrase natural selection, yes, evolution, no. But when we look at what these guys are saying, what Darwin himself was saying about natural selection, he's 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 using it as a as a total view of all of life, and it's a, a substitute creator. And I want to get into the more into the meat of that inverted explanation that he gave. And so we've got a few more quotes on this. Um, centering on the differences between uh, what scientists were looking at, the way they were thinking about creatures and their adaptations, if you will. And by, by, adapta by adaptation, I don't mean... Uh, any feature on it. I mean those particular features that can shift appropriately, okay? Size, um, body size, uh, beak shape, hair color, these are shiftable, adaptable features. In a way, you, you just made an important point though. Words matter. Okay. Because we use the word adaptation in one way, yes. and evolutionists are thinking in a completely different way. And so how we phrase things can be misleading in and of itself. So thank you for clarifying what we mean by adaptation. That's what I mean when I, when I say this. But they were seeing that. Every generation sees certain, you know, certain um, uh, adaptations occur in certain traits with certain creatures. So how, what were they thinking about that before Darwin versus after Darwin? So that's kind of, in other words, 
how did Darwin change all of biology so radically? So that's what we want to dive into. Now, the first quote is a bit of a long one. Uh, now, the first one is by Stephen Gould, uh, 2002, The Structure of Evolutionary Theory. He says, I proceed in this way for a principal reason and not merely as a convenience. All major evolutionary theories before Darwin are presenting a fundamentally internalist account based upon intrinsic and predictable patterns set by the nature of living systems for development or unfolding through time. Darwin's theory, in strong and revolutionary contrast, presents a, the first externalist account of evolution, the summation of unpredictable local adaptations rather than a deterministic unfolding of inherent potential under internal biological principles. So just to come up for air on this one. External, internal. Gould is making this point. Dar he's saying that, that Darwin made the first account of why are these creatures adapting? Well, it's because of what's happening around them. It has nothing to do with what's happening within them. I think that's what Gould's getting at, but we'll talk about it here in a minute. Uh, the last line in this quote, Darwin overturned all previous traditions by thus granting the external environment a causal and controlling role in the direction of evolutionary change. Uh, yeah, we have another quote here by <clears throat> Michael Denton from 2013. Uh, and he says this, For two centuries, biologists have been divided into two opposing camps, the so-called structuralist or formalist and functionalist schools of thought regarding the fundament, fundamental nature of organic form. And just to add on to that, you know, as Brian read, uh, Stephen Jay Gould mentioned this, and probably one of the leading evolutionary theorists, and one of his leading colleagues at Harvard University was Richard Lewontin, a geneticist there, and both of them thought very long and hard about this. And, and in many ways, even, you had to come up for air on your quote, but Lewontin, I think it explains it a little more clearly for the average person. He basically says, for Darwin, the external world, the environment acting on organisms was the cause of the form of organisms. That's really, let, uh, let's pause for air there. He, he's, he's saying the environment is the cause of organism for all of this. He adds that the environment, the external world with its autonomous properties was the subject and the organism was again the object acted upon. So he's saying way back sometime in their, their view, billions of years ago, maybe up to a billion years ago, somehow the natural forces on this planet brought life into existence. And not only did it bring life into existence, it somehow gave us the diversity of life. In other words, Environment is the cause of organism in every way. And then he adds, it is from this view of the environment as the cause of organism that the entire corpus of modern biology arises. It's that corpus which really leads us to say, maybe there isn't a need of a God. And that's what this whole area of biology is pointing out. We cannot fully appreciate the nature of the change in biology wrought by Mendel through genetics and then Darwin, unless we understand the historical importance of the objectification of the organism. Yeah, I've got uh, one more quote here, and it is from Stephen Jay Gould in his book, The Structure of Evolutionary Theory. And let me just, first of all, just add, Gould just nailed it. And he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a creationist. He was one of the leading evolutionists of the modern era. 
but he would state things as he saw them in you know basically a very realistic view of, of what's actually going on and he knew the history of evolution so he said this um, the designation of one principle or the other as the causal foundation of biology virtually defines the position of any scientist towards the organic world and its causes of order. So what does he mean by one principle or the other? So in other words, the internalistic view or the externalistic view. Yep. And he's not really creating a false dichotomy there because when we as engineers make something, we build into whatever we design all the capabilities that it's going to ever have including the capability to relate to its external environment. Well, it's like self-driving cars, you know, the exactly. Google now is making these self-driving cars and and these cars have intricate systems to where they detect their environment around them and so they don't run into other cars, they know when to stop at stoplights. They have machine learning algorithms to where they can actually learn as they go. But is the environment creating these cars and shaping them? No, it's the engineering that went into them that is allowing these things to move through space and time and function. So in, so in the internalist view, God is the engineer or the designer who's put this internal program into the organism so that it can adapt to its environment. But in the externalist view, it's the, the environment itself is actually acting almost like uh, the potter, which I find interesting because one of these guys actually makes that analogy, you know, modeling clay. And of course, I can't help but re be reminded of that scripture where it re it, the analogy is to the Lord as the, the one who's doing the modeling, but they're saying, no, the environment, the environment is the one that's doing the molding on the organism. Yeah, and it's easy to kind of get confused because we relate to our environment. We, we were designed and engineered to respond to environmental changes, but the capacity to do that responding is within the organism itself. And it's the capacity to detect what's happening in the environment. There's internal programming, which is like a logic that the Lord built in that says, if you detect this, then respond in certain ways. And then we have the ability to respond to it. Now, before we could actually look inside creatures, at the molecular level, you know, we were really like a black box. And you could see the environment change, and you could see organisms respond, and you could say, well, this caused that. And I could understand where Darwin could see this, but things have changed since then. We can, we can now look in organisms. The whole idea that organisms had molecular sensors, sensors on their cells, and that they actually had um, innate programming, and then they actually had this built-in information was totally, Darwin didn't know any of that. So you could easily see where he said, well, the, the environment changed, therefore it caused this. But now we know the environment really is just like a variable. It's either there or it's not. Organisms actively detect things, data is sent in, and they respond internally and appropriately. Data is sent in, or are we saying they're actually reaching out and collecting data? Yes, I, thank you, That's a, I need to clarify that because you know, um, when I mean data is sent in, I'm, I'm talking about like from the cellular surface, mm. there's molecular mechanisms which transport what the, what the sensors detect, bringing it in for the cell to respond on so, or the organism. So like the, like the Google car or whatever, the self-driving cars, 
it's got cameras all around it. So we think of those as sensors. And they're like actively probing what's, you know, the images. And then the wires are kind of what you're talking about, sending that image into some sort of CPU right. that knows what to do. So we wouldn't look at that self-driving car and say, ah, the road and the edges of the road and the moving traffic, that's what's causing this car inadvertently to be able to do all these things. But that's kind of what I'm getting the impression. That's what that's the switch that Darwin made yeah. with this natural selection. Bingo! That is the switch, and um, and so he, he as, as Jake mentioned, you know, you see the environment is basically molding and shaping. I mean, I guess one of these guys did say something about modeling yeah. clay on there. This is huge. I mean, so so at the core of this. It's, a, it's an externalistic view, which goes back to what we said at the beginning of our discussion about flipping everything on its head. And so we would, we would normally look at that car and go, someone did that right, on purpose. A designer had it in mind, put it all together. That's why it's able to do the things that it can do. But when it comes to biology, why can't we make that same analogy? Well, I think we can, and yeah. I think we should, and I think somehow we have grabbed onto, as a culture, this idea that uh, there, there's no purpose, there's no designer. It's almost like a blind has been put on uh, uh, to, this, to, this, uh, uh, to, this, to the creator. It's like, don't, no creator here. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, instead, instead just, just remember, these things just happen. You know, these cars, just, these self-driving cars just happen so to speak, or these self-swimming fish just happen. Well, before, by, before Darwin, it was internalistic. And this was the radical, uh, as you read, it is, a, as Gould mentioned, it was in strong and revolutionary change. This is what he changed. And it's, it's a framework. It's just the way you look at it. It's, there's nothing really different. So before Darwin, uh, scientists looked at what creatures could do and their, their abilities. And after Darwin, it was seen as the environment is shaping them as if, it, as if it was the potter and the organism was the clay. I was going to say, it almost seems kind of logically perverse in a way because if apparent appearance of design is not evidence for design, then what is? You know, it's, it's almost like you're excluding that by definition. And... It almost reminds me of C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, where you have to, he said that when he was writing that book, he had to get in this kind of weird mental position to try to make these perverse arguments that, from a totally different perspective, and it's almost like, you know, Gould talked about Darwin was inverting the argument. And um, am I going too far? But it, it sounds logically perverse to me. It is logically perverse because in Darwin's world, you have the ability to select with no intention. So it's, it's a logical contradiction. And then you have a creative force that's unconscious. And these are just logical contradictions. And he's, he's flipping it all around. And whereas, whereas what we in ICR are moving towards is like life before Darwin, we start to look at the organisms and we see what the organisms can do. And we see the sensors, we see the internal programming, and you made a great point. It's pointing to the creator. And if you, if you say, well, it, by definition, it cannot point to the creator, then you'll never get to the creator. But when we focus on the creatures, we focus on what they were able to do 
and what the Creator built right into them. Well, let's move on to the next set of quotes. And we're still, in the, we're still at the heart and the core of what Darwin did. And this is what these guys are saying about it, um, about the internalist versus externalist view, this whole, this whole switch in the way of, in the way of thinking that, that Darwin's um, um, idea brought. Okay, So my next uh, quote here says this, the term internalist makes reference to the nature of the originating, organizing principle of biological form. In true externalism, the originating, organizing principle is imposed from without, regardless of how it may become inscribed in the organism. Specifically, when it is asserted that form must be explained in functional terms, the organizing principle is external. Uh, here's another quote um, from Mark Kirshner and John Gerhardt from 2005. He, that is Darwin, accepted the view that the environment directly instructs the organism how to vary, and he proposed a mechanism for inheriting those changes. The organism was like modeling clay, and, and remolding of the clay meant that each of the billions of little grains was free to move a little bit in any direction to generate new form. If an organism needed a wing, an opposable thumb, longer legs, web feet, or placental development, any of these would emerge under the proper selective conditions with time. Exactly right. And Stephen Jay Gould, even long before he put together a structure of evolutionary theory, he was thinking very deeply about what Darwin changed. And way back in 1977, just about the year that I became a creationist, he mentioned that the externalists identified the agent of change, not within organisms themselves, but in a fluctuating external environment, and that evolution proceeded when changes in the physical environment established selective pressures for new adaptation. I will refer to the belief in external control as environmentalist, and to claims for the inherent cause of changes as internalist. Well, moving along, I have a quote here from an intelligent design uh, advocate, William A. Dembski, who's, who's quite well known. He's authored a number of books, and this one is from the Design Revolution book. And he says, thus, according to Darwin, nature itself constitutes the supreme animal breeder that shapes the path of life. In particular, necessity in the form of natural selection and chance in the form of random variation are said to account for all of the biological complexity and diversity. So this is one of the, one of the areas of, of Darwin's thinking <laughs> that I have a lot of problem with because I spent seven years as a plant breeder back in the 1990s working uh, with soybeans. And so Darwin is basically taking natural selection or nature and he's personifying it as some sort of entity that can scrutinize, that can select, that can pick this, pick that, and do it with amazing efficiency to create new forms of life. He is personifying a, a process that I don't think is a real process. It's a mythical construct. Right, exactly. And as it mentions right here, what Dembski said, thus according to Darwin, nature itself, nature itself constitutes the supreme animal breeder and the link, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later as well because it's, it's gonna come up over and over again, the link to getting nature to act like an agent 
is to project onto nature the activities of a real agent, and that is to project onto nature the selective ability. And in the moment you project onto nature selective ability, you've projected onto nature intelligence, you've projected onto nature volition, you've projected onto nature everything that I used to do as an engineer when I would design things myself. And so all of these, these, all these quotes that we take together, if you really think about what these gentlemen are saying, and, and, and Marta Linda Medina there as well, she added to it, that they're, they're saying that organisms, as viewed by biologists today, are passive modeling clay. And nature is the supreme sculptor of them. And the link to getting to that is this projection of selective ability onto nature, which is what Darwin did. So if God didn't do it, someone else has to do it. If we don't want God to do it, we gotta have to find something else to do it. And so uh, Darwin said, well, natural selection does it because it's acting on these passive creatures as they travel through time and as they reproduce, and it's doing all the selecting and, and Okay, so let's, and, and basically externalism became the way that we, that we see things. Yeah, exactly. That's what I, that's what I taught, was taught in school, and that's what I'm sure Dr. Tompkins was taught. I was taught that uh, selective pressures, well, I know we're going to discuss pressures coming up in a bit, that selective pressures were the molding force that were shaping organisms. And I, I really didn't see organisms as active problem-solving entities. I, I really saw them as more of the passive modeling clay um, because that's exactly how I was brought up. Of course, then I would add the little caveat, well, natural selection can do it, but it just can't do everything Darwin can claim he's doing. But I didn't realize that just buying into this externalistic view in and of itself put me on the wrong trajectory right from the beginning, put me on the wrong playing field right from the very beginning, put me right into Darwin's camp right from the very beginning. These researchers, Dr. Jeff, you were talking about these um, fish uh, uh, experiments and um, these blind cave fish. Thinking about the fish in terms of the cave is doing it, the cave is doing it, the cave is doing it, and then seeing the fish doing their own changes, did Darwin's selection, a natural selection concept, help push this research forward or did it hinder? How, how does the phrase uh, selective pressures? Uh, if we could start transitioning to that. Do you see that phrase in the literature that talks about these fishes? In other words, they're, they're seeing the internal, but they're still saying, are they still saying external? Or, or, or are they saying both? Or, or what are they saying in the literature? Well, first of all, this whole field of research with these blind cavefish has blossomed because of these internal systems, because they're so complex. There's so many aspects to be studied about them, physiology, biochemistry, the behavior of the fish changes. Um, all these different sensor systems that are deployed, enhanced, body parts are completely reworked and reshaped. So there's so many avenues to go in this research that that's why this field has blossomed. So these people are getting huge grant proposals to study this thing, not because of selective pressures they have identified, or natural selection, but because of all these amazing uh, changes that they're observing in the fish and that they're documenting. So it sounds like they're seeing internal structures that are 
the fish is oh, detecting absolutely. the fish is deploying it's and the they're fish, benefiting fish. off of these <laughs> internal systems and these amazing it uh, so assists. if that's what they're seeing then in their papers do they say well we were wrong about the cave doing it we were we were wrong about selection the selection is actually happening in inside the creature are they admitting that no, they're not admitting that uh, natural selection is wrong. In fact, they'll, they'll often throw some terms in here and there just to, to maintain respectability. Street <laughs> cred. Oh, right, street, <laughs> street cred amongst the evolutionary community. But the, the whole field and that whole segment of, of the, the biology research community has blossomed because of all this internal programming and all these systems. So it's almost like they have to look past the the barriers and the barricades of selectionism and externalism. They have to kind of wind their way through all those Darwinian barriers in order to do their research because they're not because they're not finding that, that the cave conditions are actually generating diddly squat. They're finding that the fish are generating their own trait variations. And, uh, and they're trying to figure out how they're doing that. Trying to figure out how. You know, and as the fish detect those conditions, that is, you know, right at the very first quotes we were reading, it said, this view defined one camp or the other. And, you know, prior to Dar Darwin, it was predominantly overwhelming and internalistic camp. And then, not immediately, but over time, he flipped it to externalism. And what Dr. Tompkins is talking about is that, wait a second here, as we actually see what's happening with organisms, it's not fitting in the theory. It's, it's not, it's like a a square peg in a round hole, it's not working right. But they still can't get rid of the round hole, and uh, therefore they contort their explanations in their papers to fit the round hole, even though what they're observing is really pointing back towards internalism, and this is where, this isn't a false dichotomy, by the way. It, you see one or the other, and you, so as a physicist, you know that Earth is being bathed by sunlight. And sunlight is, is a stimulus for jillions of reactions on this planet, all kinds of reactions. It's being bathed there and organisms detect it and they, they respond. And it's what's in the organism which is programmed to say sunlight will be a stimulus. And how do we know that? Because we know that the sunlight is bathing organisms and there's all kinds of responses on Earth, but the same sunlight is bathing Mars. Mars is exposed to the exact same sunlight. And well, as far as we not know, as intense, but well, yes. not as intense. Sure. But it, it's it's. I knew a physicist would <laughs> would find that there would be something a little different. But it's it's. When I look at those pictures coming from Mars, I see sunlight yeah. there. And the point I'm making is, as far as we know, sunlight's not a stimulus to anything on Mars. So it's not the sunlight in and of itself. It's the organisms on Earth which means it's a stimulus. Both planets, same exposure, one responds, one shows it. It's what's in these creatures which makes all the difference between Mars and Earth. So, so Darwin would say, it's the sunlight. You just give it enough time and variations and hit, eventually creatures. Hit and miss, hit and miss variations. Hit and miss, hit and miss. And then eventually creatures are gonna the sunlight is going to generate creatures that will have a function. To the have a function, and that's why they're called functionalists. They'll these creatures which will not do something on purpose, but they'll have a function, and they'll be functionalists. So, externalists, functionalists—they, and I guess Gould called them environmentalists. 
they're seeing all the operative end right in there. Mm. Well, bottom line, externalism. I think we've seen from these quotes talking about natural selection, it's the environment that's taking the place of the creator in this view. So that moves us to our, our next uh, question. Uh, and this is getting into Charles Darwin's mind back when he wrote on the origin of species, this is 1859. What was in his mind when he conceived of natural selection? In other words, let's just look right at what he said about his own theory and why he called it the way he, what he called it. So he said this, I have called this principle by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved by the term of natural selection in order to mark its relation to man's power of selection. We have seen that man by selection can certainly produce great results, but natural selection, as we shall hereafter see, is a power incessantly ready for action and is as immeasurably superior to man's feeble efforts, etc. And then he goes on. What else did Darwin say? Uh, well, uh, he's, well, he's went on later and said this. He's talking about uh, Malthusian thinking about you know scarcity of resources. This is the doctrine of Malthus applied to the whole animal and vegetable kingdoms. As many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive, and as consequently there is a frequently recurring struggle for existence, we shall then see how natural selection almost inevitably causes much extinction of the less improved forms of life. Yeah, these are these are really important, and we're taking them right from Darwin's the, the work first himself. edition. First, first edition. Yeah. So he's he's consolidating his thorns. He's comparing nature to a, a human breeder. He's rolling in Charles. He's rolling in excuse me, Malthus. Charles Darwin's rolling in Malthus here to bring it into the animal kingdom. And then what I'm going to read is really from the last page of his book. He's summarizing everything. Of, of this, and he says, to reflect on these elaborately constructed forms. And right before that, he had, he had considered a tangled bank with all the different kinds of creatures all working together in a, in a really close form. And he said, as I looked at that, to reflect on these elaborately constructed forms have all been produced by laws acting around us, growth, reproduction, and inheritance. And those were the ones that he was talking about. And therefore, from the indirect and direct action of the external conditions of life and as a consequence to natural selection entailing the extinction of less improved forms. Thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, what proceeds is the production of higher animals. And that directly follows. There is a grandeur in this view of life. So in, in some ways, he's laying out his whole concept here, some of which we're familiar with, but some of which it appears that are, are kind of new because we don't hear a lot of people talking about Malthus when they're talking about Darwin. And we don't hear about them really talking all, all the time about extinction when they're talking about Darwin. And we don't hear him always referring to the fact that he's comparing it to a human breeder when they're talking about Darwin. And these are, these are kind of unique things that he's, he's come up with. He even says the word external. And, and he's, he's saying indirect and direct action of the external. So it's, this external is doing an action. And what's it doing? It's, it's selecting. And 
to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms all have been produced by laws. And then he lists th these actors, growth, reproduction, and inheritance. And I want to think about those three. Those three. Growth, well, when an animal grows, what's happening? Is, is it because its environment is forcing it to grow? I mean... It's, gotta, it's programmed to grow. It's got to be programmed to yeah. grow. Uh, what about to reproduce? Same thing. And then inheritance. Did you get your traits from the universe? No. For <laughs> no. He's a physicist, but... Uh, no, yeah. no. Yeah. 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 He wishes. He wishes. <laughs> you got it from your parents. Yeah. According to... Internal, from the, inter the internal inner workings of the organisms. Yeah. Right. Well... I, I, I think, was taught I, that... I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just think you just hit on something really profound here. Maybe it's what you were taught there, that, that these things are internal, and it almost sounds like you're going to try to point out a contradiction. I'm trying to guess what you're thinking. Well, these are internal. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we recognize these as internal, and I guess what you have to do when you, when you read Darwin is you really have to be on guard, and you have to think, is, is what he's saying on one hand... Does it match or fit what he's saying on his other hand? Uh, because on the one hand, he's saying, to think that all these great forms formed from external, 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 for example, and then he gives three internal ha happenings. You know, three, his three examples are, ha are, are things that happen internally. So, so you have to be, I would say, you have to be really careful and keep your guard up as, you, as, you, as we read uh, Darwin. It's almost a sleight of hand when you said on the one hand and mm. then on the other hand. And oh, it's kind of like whoop, whoop. Yep, yep. And I've, I've actually seen that too. I've seen a little syllogism to define natural selection. If an organism can produce traits internal, if those traits solve a problem, it's the capacity of the trait, if they can reproduce and if they can pass on their traits, then nature will select for those traits. Yeah. And everything he described up to that point in the syllogism is internal and then suddenly... As you're pointing out, it's like the nature selected for them. Well, how did, how did that happen? How did you go from internal to external in, in one sentence? Unless you're reading, as you point out, very carefully, you're not going to catch that sleight of hand. Right. Well, we mentioned Malthus. We, so we need to say something about Thomas Malthus. Uh, Darwin mentioned Malthus. He said, I've been reading this guy, and I really appreciate his work. Is what I would imagine Darwin thinking and so what was Thomas Malthus's big idea that Darwin um, sort of subsumed into his, into his grand uh, creator replacement model? Well, Malthus was basically saying that populations get larger and larger and larger, and eventually there's not enough resources to feed everybody, and so some of them are going to die. So it's, you know, this idea of sort of a, a Malthusian catastrophe where you just run out of resources because populations just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we talked about Malthus, Malth this Malthusian philosophy that this just this struggle to survive and the the weak the weak die off the, the you know uh, it, and it's only the strongest that survive and and do we see that is that what is that what characterizes population adjustments? Or, or shifts that we see in real populations like in the wild today? Is that what biologists are finding in the wild? Have you guys read studies on that? 
Well, I actually read a review paper on that where, where the, the author showed from various studies that were do done on different types of organisms and populations that these creatures will literally sense internally with the programming they have the, the amount of resources, the constraints of the environment, all of these things, and they will literally adjust their reproductive rates and their populations accordingly. And this, this system is built into these creatures, and yes, it's operating on a population-wide level, but it's something that the creator put into these creatures so that they wouldn't overpopulate. Now, I, I've seen the same thing. I've got several papers. In fact, I have a, a talk on anticipatory systems in creatures, and multiple studies, which I quote in that, show that fertility rates get adjusted when food is scarce, the, the parents can actually detect that. And their fertility rate changes and even the fertility rate in their offspring changes. In fact, one paper even documented in several types of birds, sex ratios are adjusted, mm -hmm. which we normally think are just randomly set at 50-50, male-female. But in this particular case, there was actually, and nobody has the mechanisms identified to how this is happening, but it does happen. Well, even Internally. reptiles like, like alligators, um, the eggs have sensors on them that will sense the environment and it, basically they'll determine based on the programming whether to make more females or more males. And that's a thermometer, basically. Right, It's a exactly. temperature sensor. Yeah, a thermometer, is what, is what they're right. doing. Yeah. But why, but we've got to come back to it. Why does, what did Malthusian philosophy do for Darwinian selection? Now, yeah, he put it in for a reason. And I think that's because he knew um, the analogy of comparing nature to a human breeder, which we'll, I think we'll get to, is, is really a fundamentally flawed analogy. But that in and of itself, an ability to nature select something, doesn't lead to an idea of going from simple to complex. So Darwin had to introduce into his theory, and this is why he was a very thoughtful guy, he's, he's building a whole theory to explain things, not just, not just survival of the fittest. He's putting together a whole theory. He needs a trajectory to go from simple to complex. And that's what Malthus does for him. Because he says, basically, in any generation, there are more offspring born than resources available to them. Which is not biologically true, but anyways. But, but that's exactly right. And the offspring are competing with each other which also clarifies something you said earlier, which, is, which people interpret as natural selection, but really isn't. When you see a cheetah running down a gazelle, you see, and, the, and it overtakes the gazelle and eats it, you say, oh, natural selection just happened. Wrong, that isn't what Darwin con was conceiving of at all. He was not considering conceiving of cheetah versus gazelle, he's considering cheetah versus cheetah and gazelle versus gazelle so that the offspring are competing for these resources, and this, in this case it might be cheetahs or something else, and therefore only the best, the best of the best, will get the resources, and of their offspring, the best of the best will get them, and of their offspring, the best, so that over time, you end up with some upward and onward trajectory. So it was a way to add direction to so you can get from fish to philosopher. Exactly, to direction to what could be considered just a random haphazard process, which could be fluctuating back and forth, back and forth. Mm. He wants to introduce a trajectory to it, and Malthus fills the bill. 
Well, we just read quotes about an analogy to a breeder. And Darwin was saying, uh, breeders can take and make all these forms, but natural selection... So human selectors can do X, but nature as a selector can do X to the 10th power, you know, right. way, way more, way better. Yeah, let me just read that quote again. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is really telling. This just shows you how far Darwin took this thing and <laughs> this paradigm and made it, made it uh, to have godlike powers, really. Listen to this. So Darwin says, But natural selection, as we shall see hereafter see, is a power incessantly ready for action and is as immeasurably superior to man's feeble efforts. And he was talking about those of an animal breeder or a plant breeder. Uh, to me, this just sounds like a, a bald assertion. It's just, oh, it is. It just does this. When? Where? Show me examples. Uh, but, but the point that I want to look at now is just the analogy to a breeder. Is that a valid analogy? Can we say that just like a breeder selects these individuals that have this trait that he or she wants to keep, that's what breeders do, right? Can we therefore say that sunlight selects from, the, from, from among the population these and deselects those? Or cave conditions selects these and deselects those? Are these conditions really doing the selecting that, that Darwin drew the analogy to? Yeah, well, the answer is, is no. And um, for one fundamental reason, as you know, I'm sure we'll even be bringing up some other people who have criticized Darwin later on, is that human breeders have a real brain. They really are conscience. They really can make real selections. They have real volition and make real choices. But nature doesn't have that. And in fact, I know we're going to discuss it because this is a major criticism of Darwin and his flawed analogy is this projection of selective ability onto nature and comparing it to a human brain which has real intellect and real volition. So this particular case, we're looking at it and we're, we're agree agreeing, because we've kind of looked at this before, we're agreeing that this is, this is not a valid analogy. Are there valid analogies that can be made? It, just in general in the world, like is, is analogy something that scientists can do? Well, this is an empty metaphor, you know, all the way around, however you look at it. it it's just... Uh... So this one's empty, but are, are there some that have substance? Yes, yes. And uh, so there are ones that have substance, and that's where we actually have to look, as you're talking about, to check for a sleight of hand and, and, and analyze things carefully. And that's really kind of the value of looking what these scholars have said, because they've thought about it longer than the average person and they've pondered these things. And you know, in, or, in order to have a really thoughtful discussion about selection, you have to think about what people who have thought about it for a while have said. And uh, many have pointed out that this, this analogy, whereas you can make good analogies, you can use good metaphors, in this particular case, this analogy is fundamentally flawed. Mm. Well, Darwin brought externalism, that's the main switch, and he added to that death, bringing a, this Malthusian death to, to drive the direction of these, of these changes. Uh, because you've you got to have some sort of substitute power and some sort of substitute selector in order to swap out 
you know, uh, natural systems for God. And so he's bringing all these together. But it turns out that it's just all based on a, uh, an analogy, and the analogy doesn't even hold true. Uh, wow. Um, we're going to wrap up. This is last, uh, our last uh, set of questions here. What key elements of, the, of, of his theory set him apart? Um, and let's just look at these quotes that compared the breeder analogy on this. And, and, and because this is what, this analogy is, is what set Darwin apart from others who were already noticing creature changes, creature adjustments, trait shifts. Uh, they weren't saying, oh, this is driven by external. They weren't saying uh, death, death of the unfit is what's, is what's driving this in a particular direction. Uh, and don't take my word for it. Um, here's Edward Stuart Russell. Um, 1962 said this, It is unfortunate that Darwin ever introduced the term natural selection, for it has given rise to much confusion of thought. The action of man in selective breeding is not analogous to the action of natural selection, but almost its direct opposite. Wow. Yeah, uh, here's another statement by Michael Hodge, a more recent one. Uh, he was a British philosopher of science. He said that no one would easily or inadvertently slip into talking of nature as a realm where anything like selection was located. Indeed, we find few authors before Darwin making that transition. Yeah, I noticed both of those are those gentlemen are evolutionists, yeah. and um, a very thoughtful, intelligent design advocate, William Densky, he, he makes pretty much the same observation in his book, The Design Revolution, in 2004. He astutely observes that before Darwin, the ability to choose was largely confined to designing intelligences, that is, to conscious agents that could reflect deliberately on the possible consequences of their choices. Pointing out, again, almost like your quote from Michael Hodge says, that before Darwin, nobody was really applying selective powers to nature. That's it. That he says the ability to choose. And a breeder, like you were a plant breeder, you had the ability to choose. Right. Uh, and Darwin says, essentially, these external conditions combined with death gives nature an ability to choose, and that's what dis explains all, all of life. Um, I, I, I really want to dive into this almost its direct opposite. The quote that I read, the action of man in selective breeding is not analogous to natural selection, but it's almost the opposite. In what ways do you guys think it's of it as the opposite? Nah. Well, for one thing, um, according to Darwin, because it's selection without intent, it's really hit and miss, and it's trial and error. And it's like, you know, just choosing a random lottery ball or something like that. It's, it's, it's not like I would actually use selective abilities with real intent, which is a fundamental idea of selection. And so, he has this strange idea of selection without intent and the whole idea that his selective process is based on trial and error and hit and miss, which is, as he says, almost the exact opposite of what Dr. Tompkins would have done as a real breeder. He did, I don't think he used trial and error. 
And uh, so he used real intention in this case. Mm. When I think about what Darwin did, uh, he was a thoughtful man. And he's, he wants to explain the design of life. And he wants to put together a, a, a coherent, comprehensive theory on that. And I've read multiple times where people uh, really almost have accused him of being a plagiarizer because other people saw that environments changed and some creatures lived and some creatures died. And, um, and Darwin saw the same thing. And their concept of natural selection is, is really, really simplistic, really, really limited to that. And because, you know, Hutton and Blythe and other people had those same observations before Darwin that um, in many ways they've kind of slandered Darwin, and I'm not here to defend Darwin, by saying he's a plagiarizer of these things. But I think what we, what we brought out is really important that before Darwin, nobody was really applying selective ability to nature. Before Darwin, they weren't coming at it from this strictly externalistic view. Before Darwin, they really weren't applying Malthus to, to biology. And they really weren't seeing this, this whole idea that advancement is driven by pure extinction, a kind of a, a very strict death-driven worldview. And so, in many ways, they're, they're incorrect by accusing Darwin of plagiarism when none of these other people were rolling into any theory. In fact, they didn't even have a, a coherent theory like Darwin put together based on these important points which he's putting in, selective ability, Malthus, extinction, externalism, which was a biggie. Darwin put together the whole package, and maybe that's why we're talking about Darwin today and not some of these other guys. If we, repl- if we went back to the way they were thinking, like internalistically, creatures are doing their own, they're self-driving cars, or they're drones, uh, if we di- if we make that switch, um, what difference would it make? I mean, why not just go with Darwin's natural selection? I mean, it's go with the flow, as they say. And so, uh, t- because in today's culture, especially scientific culture, if you come in and say, I don't think natural selection is doing anything that Darwin said that it did. In fact, I think it's just a big swindle. Um, you're just going to be laughed at as not scientific. And is it worth that risk? To, uh, to, to go ahead and say, I'm gonna go from externalism to internalism because that's how I see things really working. Do you guys think it's worth the risk? And, well, and if so, why? You know, it's interesting because there are famous scientists and evolutionists who are totally secular, like Michael Lynch, who's a, a genomics guy, uh, Eugene Coonan, who's a very famous microbiologist, a genomics guy from the microbiology angle of things. And they basically say natural selection really doesn't exist. It's, it's not a viable reality or a process. But yet they haven't turned at the same time to say there's a creator that engineered all this. They, they think that if they get more data, if they do more studies and, and gather more data, uh, that they'll find some solution to, to evolution. But there are significant portions of the uh, evolutionary community that have rejected natural selection. And in fact, they call themselves the third way, so to speak. And I've written articles uh, about this group of of scientists. And they even have regular meetings, and and they're outspoken. And uh, they do get harassed by their colleagues for for their views. But there is a movement um, out there that that is rejecting this, this paradigm. Yeah, I would say it's also, I agree, and 
um, you know, because they get harassed, they have various degrees of how much they're willing to say, I reject selection or I don't, or they still roll it into their explanations even when all of the research is pointing towards these internal mechanisms and it's not really fitting with standard evolutionary theory, therefore they have to extend evolutionary theory. But I think from ICR standpoint, it is important because when, when you approach it from the externalistic view, and this is not a false, false dichotomy, you're on the wrong track of looking for where the operation is actually taking place inside of organisms right from the very beginning. You, you're on the wrong track, and when you go down the internalistic model, you look at the organism, and you see the organism for what it really is, and as it was really created by the Lord, as an active problem-solving entity that was originally created not to survive in a world where death wasn't reigning, but to thrive and to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Uh, a dynamic earth right from the very beginning, and as organisms display this great ability to adapt, they are really demonstrating the engineering genius of the Lord Jesus that he put, he put into them. So it glorifies the Lord and it gets us right on the right track of where, where operation is really happening in terms of adaptation, that organisms really have the ability to control their adjustments and to control their changes over time. And, you know, as the moderator of our discussion, you can almost get off easy by asking the questions <laughs> and, and, you know, tossing it over that, you know, do you think it's worth the risk? But you're a researcher here too. Do you think it's worth the risk? Absolutely. For, for the reasons that you just said. But I would say just because this is what I'm actually seeing, I'm not actually seeing um, differential survival do diddly squat. I'm, I'm actually seeing creatures internally designed capabilities uh, that have prearranged figure out or logic mechanisms already in there. That's what we're seeing. And we see it in creature after creature. And so just for the sake of truth, yeah. we just want to say, we're, we want to call it like we see it. But from a theological perspective, if, that's, if, nature, if natural selection really isn't um, a good substitute creator, and if it really isn't a even, it's not even a lousy substitute creator, it's not any kind of substitute creator, you know, then, then I would like nothing more than to be able to see and say with absolute clarity, and this whole way of thinking, of internalistic thinking, puts us, like you said, on the right track. So now I can point in with clarity, be able to talk about how these creatures are actually moving, changing, shifting certain traits, and how the Lord Jesus designed them to do that. Because we see those design attributes, everything you'd expect from a an actual selector, an actual designer, is, in, is already in these creatures. Um, uh, tight interlocking, form-fitted uh, parts, for example. Uh, sensors that are actually attached to logic mechanisms, and those are actually attached to uh, specific outputs. Uh, and we're seeing all that in these creatures, and the Lord Jesus deserves way, way, way more credit from his church even for doing all this designing than I think what we're, what we're uh, giving him. And so I would love to see a, re you know, a, pl a replacement. And sort of, so 
Some, some might say, well, you want to go back, you know, 200 years, and you want to send us back into the, into the scientific Stone Age, you know, pre-Darwin. Uh, but, you know, if that's where the evidence lies, so be it. And <laughs> if you've gone down the wrong path for a thousand miles, you still have to turn around. Yeah, well you can't said. just say, oh, well, I've already traveled a thousand miles. I don't want to go back. You know, it's, right. you got to, you got to, yeah. So, yeah, I want to go back so that we can go forward in the right direction. So that's my answer to that question. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of the issue of the age of the earth. You know, a lot of Christians say it doesn't matter. Well, somebody needs to tell that to the evolutionists because they squeal really loudly when a Christian questions or, d or refuses to genuflect before the supposed age of 4.6 billion years of the earth. Um, how critical this issue, we're going to find out depending on how loudly the evolutionists scream when we challenge the paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. If this isn't really a big deal, they're not going to say much. But if it is a big deal, we're, we're going to hear, hear a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. And then we'll know we're on the right track. Yep. <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining us. If you found this helpful, make sure to like and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We'll see you next time on Creation.Live.